Elder abuse is quite common, affecting 5-10% to 10% of seniors. It is associated with increased hospital admission, nursing home placement and mortality. However, there is a large discrepancy between the number of seniors abused and the number of cases reported to police. This suggests that many cases of elder abuse don't reach the criminal justice system and that physicians may be among the first who can intervene. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're talking with Dr. Mimi Wang, a Fellow in Geriatric Medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Wang has co-authored a review on the identification and assessment of elder abuse. She also offers an approach for physicians to consider when abuse in older patients is suspected. Hello, Dr. Wang. Hi, Dr. Kelsall. Well, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about your review on elder abuse. So when you use the term elder abuse, what exactly are you referring to? So one of the difficulties with the literature on elder abuse is really exactly this issue around definition. Even though it might make the research more robust, there unfortunately isn't a single universally or or even nationally accepted definition. And even the term elder abuse itself is sometimes used interchangeably with elder mistreatment or senior abuse or abuse of older adults. And so with that in mind, the World Health Organization's definition for elder abuse is a popular one. It comes from a United Kingdom definition, and it talks about having a single or repeated act or lack of appropriate action that occurs within any relationship where there's an expectation of trust, which causes harm or distress to an older person. And so the key is really the idea that someone who's in a position of trust toward an older person, whether that's a family member or a friend or a caregiver, that person in that position of trust is doing something that's harmful to the older person or is not doing something that harms that older person as a consequence. And so what we're not talking about then is when a stranger who's not in a meaningful relationship with the older person is then involved in victimizing that older person somehow. And so with that in mind, there's many different types of elder abuse. And so it includes things like physical abuse with some more obvious things like hitting, kicking, slapping, pushing, but also things that are a little bit more subtle. So uh, things like misusing medication, such as intentionally over sedating an older person or using physical restraints, all of that would be classified under physical abuse. There's also the idea of psychological abuse which is trying to cause emotional pain or injury. And that includes uh, trying to humiliate an older person, isolate them, threatening them with harm or abandonment. There's also sexual abuse, which is any sort of sexual act that the older person uh, hasn't consented to, couldn't consent to, or was pressured into consenting to. There's also financial exploitation, and that includes things like outright fraud and theft, but also, again, more subtle things like pressuring the older person to change their will. Um, Another major category is neglect, where the caregiver isn't meeting the needs of an older person who depends on him or her. So things like withholding medications, not supervising medications appropriately, not providing the older person with sufficient nutrition, not providing things like incontinence products or gate aids, glasses, hearing aids, um, or not providing shelter that's the right temperature, that sort of thing. Those are the sort of categories of elder abuse that are addressed in that WHO definition. But there are other situations that are sometimes grouped into the broader concept of elder abuse, but because they don't involve an abuser in a position of trust, they don't really nicely fall into that WHO definition, but sometimes comes out in the literature as well. And so that includes things like self-neglect, where 
an older person isn't caring adequately for themselves and there's no active abuser per se. There's also abusive caregivers, which is another category that I think we're all anecdotally seeing more of in emergency departments where there's a dependent older person who's often cognitively impaired and that dependent older person is actually the abuser of a caregiver. Um, and then, you know, as a result of that abuse, the caregiver is no longer able to provide the dependent older person with the care they need, and they end up in the emergency department. Um, another category that's getting more attention recently is the so-called resident-on-resident abuse that's occurring in long-term care facilities, where elderly, again, often cognitively impaired residents of long-term care facilities are involved in abusing other residents. So overall, then, you can see that elder abuse is, is a very complicated issue. It encompasses a lot of different subtypes. But because of how common it is and how it's associated with increased rates of hospitalization, institutionalization, and mortality, our goal really with our paper is really for physicians to become more aware about it. So as a consequence of that, should I be formally screening my older patients when I see them in my practice for abuse? That's actually a very challenging question because the literature is really not very strong in supporting any particular screening strategy or uh, what kind of signs we should really be looking for. Um, there are screening questions that might be helpful, but there aren't any Canadian or American guidelines in terms of screening. The most recent U.S. Preventative Services Task Force from 2013 actually found that there was insufficient evidence to assess for the benefits and harms of screening all older people. So part of the problem is that it's not really clear who the high-risk population is. And it might be that screening those people would be higher yield, but there really isn't any evidence to support that. So with that in mind, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, uh, their systematic review, they did talk about the Elder Abuse Suspicion Index, which I, I think is a very helpful tool. This is a, a two-minute, six-item yes-no questionnaire. It was created by Dr. Mark Yaffe and colleagues at McGill. It's intended for cognitively intact older people in a family physician's office, but I think the ideas from it can be adopted for other settings as well. The questions on it are about whether the older person is functionally dependent, if anyone has prevented that older person from getting clothes, food, medication, glasses, hearing aids, medical care, being with the people they wanted to be with, if anybody has spoken to that older person in a way that made them feel ashamed or threatened, and if someone has tried to force them to sign papers or to use their money in a way they didn't want, and if anyone has made them afraid or touched them in ways they didn't want or hurt them physically. So you can see with those questions, they really get at most of the types of elder abuse that we're, we're really worried about. And this is a tool that's been uh, well received by family physicians as part of their validation study in Montreal. So it's, it's one that I think can be adopted to different settings, but it's there's unfortunately no real evidence about who should be getting screened and, and what questions we should be asking them. It's important, though, to remember that, you know, anytime you're thinking about elder abuse, to question the patient separately from the caregiver, especially because caregivers often accompany older, frail patients to appointments. And you might actually be a little bit more suspicious about abuse with a caregiver who doesn't want you to interview the older person alone. So it sounds like I shouldn't be formally screening them, but I'm, I'm guessing I should sort of have my antenna up. Yeah, exactly. 
there isn't a, a single type of patient that might lead you to suspect abuse. And again, the research on risk factors for abuse is not very robust either because of the lack of consistency in definitions and measurement tools. And there's actually a lot of conflicting data, which is frustrating, I think, as a clinician, because some of it is actually quite controversial because there are studies that show, for example, particular ethnicities are at higher risk for abuse. And it's very hard to, to try and take that that information in the literature and apply it to practice. There's also emerging data now that suggests that there are probably different risk factors for different types of abuse, and we just don't have that information to really inform our clinical practice. But that said, there are certain things that come out relatively more consistently in the literature and should probably make physicians' antennas go up. Um, and, and think about elder abuse more. So, for example, when the patient is cognitively impaired, functionally dependent, has behavioral problems, has an underlying psychiatric illness, is physically frail or socially isolated, those are all warning signs that might make you, you know, want to have that antenna go up. It's also important to think about caregiver characteristics, um, such as how stressed out they are and caregiver burden, um, and also what their relationship was like with the older person before that older person became dependent on them. You know, is the caregiver dependent financially on the older person? Does the caregiver have problems with psychiatric illness or, or substance abuse themselves? Um, because all these situations are often very complex, and those are all things that might make you think uh, about elder abuse a little bit more. You know, one example I like to think about is that you might have a patient who's getting progressively more frail or cognitively impaired um, and is getting to a point that living in the community isn't really safe anymore, but the caregiver doesn't want to really talk about other living situations like assisted living or retirement homes. And this is a, a common situation that we see, and for many caregivers, it's because they truly want to support their mom or dad or whoever it is they're caring for for as long as possible in the community because that's what the older person wants wants. But there are also caregivers where it's because there's a financial motivation to downplaying uh, functional impairment and trying to keep the older person at home. And so the important thing is for physicians to be aware of this. Um, a patient who seems withdrawn or makes poor eye contact, has poor hygiene, um, is wearing inappropriate clothes or has poor medication adherence, weight loss or depressive symptoms, those all are, are things that might make you want to think about elder abuse a little bit more in. So when I have an, elder, um, an older patient in my office, are there any things on physical examination? I mean, you mentioned a few of these, like um, not being dressed appropriately or maybe not being clean, but are there any sort of physical signs, other ones that I should be looking at that, that may sort of indicate abuse is, is, might be a possibility? This is another really challenging question, uh, and again, the literature is not strong really in supporting what signs we should really be looking for, and the problem is that a lot of the signs of elder abuse are silent or can be caused by many other non-abuse causes. The physical signs will also more likely be focused on physical abuse and neglect, um, but things that you might want to think about would be you know, when there's an inadequately explained or unusual location for skin abrasions, lacerations, bruises, burns, um, if there's a long duration of time between the, the time of injury and the time that they come to medical attention, unusual fractures like spiral fractures of long bones, people who are malnourished or are dehydrated, people who have pressure ulcers, uh, sexually transmitted infections or pain in the oral uh, or anal genital regions, those are all physical signs that you might look for. But again, many of those signs can also be caused by non-abuse things 
So it, it comes down to, I think, more importantly, uh, just having that suspicion um, and then trying to address it following that. So it sounds like we really need to look at the relationship between the patient and the caregiver. I mean, there's a lot of subtle things that would you'd put together and you might go, I'm worried, my patient may be abused. And if that is the case, what's my next step? There is no strong evidence for any particular intervention strategy, really because of how complex and diverse elder abuse is. But that said, this is a common problem and clinicians need some sort of approach. And so the approach that we suggest in our review paper is an advocacy approach. And it starts with discussing privately with a patient your concerns. And really the important decision is to try and assess the patient's decision-making capacity because that's going to lead you down a fairly different path depending on whether they seem capable or incapable, whether they understand and appreciate the consequences of any proposed intervention that you're thinking of. Because if the older person who you're suspicious of abuse about is thought to be capable we suggest for the physician to tell the older person that the physician is concerned about abuse, to educate the patient about elder abuse and how it might increase in frequency and severity, to create an emergency safety plan if that's a concern, uh, and to really provide him or her with local resources. So things like day programs, home care, respite care, legal services, shelters, uh, government-supported elder abuse consultants. A lot of it depends on where you physically are located located as a physician and what local resources you have. Depending on the urgency and severity of the situation, there might also be times when going to the emergency department and hospital admission is actually appropriate or calling the police. There are additional resources such as the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, the Canadian Network for uh, Prevention of Elder Abuse. Uh, There are also uh, seniors issues units uh, with most of our provincial police in Canada, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police as well. Our, Our caveat would be that it should really be a priority to respect the capable older person's autonomy and the physician should be seeking explicit permission prior to discussing any concerns with anybody other than the patient. If you think that the older person who you're worried about abuse in uh, is incapable of making those sort of decisions around seeking more help, then the first step might be to then identify the patient's power of attorney and then offering the same resources to that power of attorney. If you're worried, though, that the power of attorney is not acting in the patient's best interest or is actually the abuser, then alternative strategies like checking in again with social service agencies, contacting other family members, uh, guardianship through the public guardian and trustee, those are all things that you might want to consider. It's really important that whatever you do, that that person is offered more frequent medical follow-up so that they have that continued relationship with the physician uh, to try and follow things along. Um, Another caveat would be to ensure that the incapable patient doesn't have any reversible medical causes of incapacity that can be addressed before seeking guardianship. And I think it's always important to remember if you're thinking about reporting to legal authorities to think about empowerment of the individual and respecting that older person's autonomy as much as possible, as well as the idea of urgency and proportionality, because one of the generally accepted principles of intervention is to use the least intrusive response that's appropriate to the degree of risk presented. And I think because there are often a lot of ethically challenging situations that 
I think are very hard for physicians to try and manage. I think it's also often helpful for physicians to collaborate with other people and seek advice from, for example, the Advocacy Center for the Elderly or home care case managers or social workers and family health teams. I think the key really for physicians is to be aware and to be suspicious about elder abuse and then to seek help because it's often very complex and I think it's not something that physicians are going to be able to tackle completely on their own. Now, you've, you mentioned the police a few times. Now, if obviously, if we were talking about a child, I'd have an obligation to report. But what about if I have a particularly vulnerable elderly person? Do I have an obligation or a responsibility to, to report this to the police? Yeah, I'm definitely not a legal expert, but my understanding is that there are different adult protection laws in Canada. They depend on province and territory, and enforcement, I think, is quite variable as well. So in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, for example, there are actually laws that mandate anyone suspecting elder abuse to report it to the police without discriminating between capable or incapable older adults. There are other provinces that limit reporting to professional persons such as physicians, or they have laws that vary based on whether the abused older person lives in a healthcare facility. With that in mind, though, given how complex it is to even define what elder abuse is, it's very challenging for these laws to actually be enforced. And there's a lot of gray areas, which is why, you know, unless it's a very, very severe and blatant case, I think it's often helpful for physicians to collaborate with other people and seek advice before reporting to police, especially in cases where the older person is thought to be capable and does not want the physician to report. Now, you mentioned interventions earlier. Are there any interventions at all that have been proven to work in this group? This this is actually the focus of our review. Uh, and unfortunately, there is no clear intervention that works for all types of abuse or has been definitively shown to be helpful. And so there are multiple interventions that have been studied in the literature. Some of them target the abuser. Some of them target the abused elder and trying to empower that older person to go and seek help. Some of them target the situation. So, for example, actually institutionalizing the older person. All of these studies, though, have significant limitations, and there's really no evidence to show that any particular intervention is effective. The most promising model right now seems to be looking at multidisciplinary teams, so looking at teams of physicians, nurses, mental health care providers, protective services, so legal professionals, um, and people who are within the justice system. But there's actually only been one study that demonstrates a statistically significant measurable outcome for a multidisciplinary team. Um, this was a study out of Los Angeles, and it was focused only on financial abuse with a multidisciplinary team, and it showed that there were higher rates of prosecution for financial abuse. Um, but it really can't be extrapolated to other types of abuse because we can imagine really that financial abuse might be relatively easier to prove in the justice system because of a paper trail. But more fundamentally, it's really unclear still at this point what an effective outcome is for elder abuse and whether abused elders actually view prosecution in a positive way. You've mentioned that there's a lot that we don't know about this topic. So for any researchers listening, what research questions do you think are the most pressing? 
So at this time, we really, we could use research in all the different areas of elder abuse, but certainly things around clarifying risk factors for each type of abuse, because this seems to be an emerging area where previously uh, research tried to address elder abuse as a whole, and that's why perhaps some of the risk factors that have been identified have been very conflicting and controversial. And so the idea that maybe each type of abuse actually has different risk factors, there certainly needs to be more research in that area. We also need help, I think, trying to identify and determine screening or case-finding thresholds um, because, as we've discussed, we really don't know at this point who we should be screening even. Um, we need to also define effective outcome measures because we don't have those. As I mentioned with the financial abuse situation and prosecution, it's not really clear whether legal prosecution or institutionalizing an older person, if those are really uh, desired outcomes. And then finally, I think to test the efficacy of clinically feasible interventional approaches, because some of the interventions that have been studied are very resource intensive and perhaps not feasible in terms of actually replicating them in practice. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about elder abuse. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking with Dr. Mimi Wang, a fellow in geriatric medicine at McMaster University. To read the review she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.